1: Hello. This weekend, we're bringing you an extra episode. In Thursday's podcast, we mention the meticulous work of the Times lawyers.
0: You know, as a reporter, to know that you have a legal team like that behind you who will not be intimidated, but also pushes us, you know, they don't give us an easy ride. They absolutely make sure that we have done our jobs as thoroughly as possible and then assess what we have done. But if they are confident in what we have done, they will not be intimidated.
1: Day in, day out, on all sorts of stories, the Times legal team make it possible for us to hold the powerful to account. Their work is vital because for publishers, large and small, legal threats have become an increasingly familiar tactic.
0: You have lots of local media organisations that might be intimidated. And then it means that very wealthy people can get away with things, knowing that they can bully their way into hushing things up. But at The Times and The Sunday Times, we are determined not to allow that to happen.
1: And this week, the editors of The Times and The Sunday Times, along with many others, wrote to the Justice Secretary calling on the government to use the next king's speech to crack down on the misuse of libel laws by the super-rich. More than 60 editors, reporters and lawyers have called for a specific anti-slap law and we'll explain more about what slap means in just a moment. We covered all of this and more in a fascinating conversation with the head of the Times legal team, Pierre Sarmer. We first broadcast this back in January, but we thought it was well worth revisiting. So, you're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how the rich and powerful try to intimidate the press. We're going to look at the threat to journalism through three libel cases. The fraudster the East London gangster and the Russian oligarch. And our guide today is the Times Lawyer-in-Chief.
2: I'm Pia Sarmer and I'm the Editorial Legal Director at Times Media and the Chief Legal Advisor to the Times and the Sunday Times. And how long have you been keeping us in line? About 13 years.
1: Pia, just give us a quick reminder of the basics of what is libel Mm. what is it to
2: defame somebody so libel is damaging somebody's reputation and it's assessed by whether what is said or written is likely to make others think less well of you i mean it's that loose but it's it's meant to fall short of hurting other people's feelings it's something more than hurting your feelings it's not being offensive it's not being rude it's not being critical. You can have an opinion about somebody, but it's, it's printing something which you, you know will damage somebody else's reputation. And you can only defend it by proving what you've said is true or by saying it was an honest opinion on facts which existed or by saying that it was in the public interest and you've done all your journalism perfectly well.
1: With that as a backdrop, just explain to us, what exactly are slaps? They're receiving quite a lot of attention being talked about in Westminster too, but what are they? SLAPs are strategic lawsuits against public participation.
2: So a bit of a mouthful, but these kinds of cases aren't just libel cases. The SLAPs cases are ones which are designed, defendants would say, to stop stories getting out there. They're oppressive. They're intimidatory by nature. They ought not to be brought. They're kind of abusive. They exist elsewhere in the world, in particular in the United States, but London is the preferred destination. You know, a town called Sioux is how it's often referred to. A town and, called Sioux.
1: And it's, This you know, is a place this, to come if you want to sue anything yeah, Absolutely, libel. yeah,
2: Yeah, this is the place to be. The capital of libel shopping. Come here if you want a good deal. The US has a constitutional right to free speech, which we are noticeably lacking in this country and in, in the UK it's because we don't have that constitutional right to free speech. And it's also because the burden of proof in libel is upon the defendant. In other words, if you say that you're going to publish a story about fraud, about a wealthy individual, that wealthy individual just has to say it's not true. They don't have any obligation really to say anything more than that. And then the burden is on you as a publisher or a journalist to prove that in fact it is true. They have to explain themselves in due course during court proceedings, but by that point, the legal proceedings have started. So, one of the hallmark of, of a slap is that they're abusive, or that there is a real disparity in the position of the claimant and the defendant. So, you've got a very wealthy individual against a blogger or against a journalist who's being named by herself rather than being part of a large media organisation. She's been picked out, something like that. Mm.
1: There's a real disparity there, but things like that which really define a case as abusive. I've been on the the receiving end of some of these letters during investigations. And it has felt in the past few years like they've become much more aggressive pre publication. So, I mean, I remember a point where it went from you wouldn't just have the date on a letter, you'd have a timestamp because mm. I'd get so many of them in the day. They'd be mm. sort of very aggressively sending you one an hour, quite clearly designed in a bullying way to try and scare you into not doing the story. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or to take up so much of your time that you, know, you you don't have time to be doing the journalism as well.
2: That's that's exactly right. And it's hard actually now because that is so much of the way that things work. It's hard to remember a time when it wasn't like that. But yeah. I think now you say that, it's absolutely right. That's what happens. And it's become an industry that operates like that. That has become the norm. So, you know, firing off the letters, a lot of empty threads and I talk to claimant lawyers these days and they go, come on, Pierre, you're entitled to a libel claim. You know, if somebody's going to publish something untrue about you, you're entitled. Can you imagine if it were you, Pierre? Can you imagine if someone was going to write that about your family? You would want a lawyer to stop that happening and you'd want to get it right. That's always been there. I get that. But I think the cottage industry that you're talking about has become very professional in the last five to ten years. It's now the norm. That's how things work. It's not that one letter which is very well thought out, very well considered. It's the barrage. Mm. And I think journalists are increasingly aware of it. And that's why it's become so topical recently.
1: And quite often you know, if you're the journalist in question, quite often it's personal too. You know, I've sort of had them where they're not only threatening to take the mm. the institution to court, they're threatening to take you personally to court too. Or, or you know, they're finding ways of singling you out. Mm. Is that something that's changed? It seems to be more prevalent. Traditionally, I think
2: claimant lawyers thought well there's no point going for the journalist himself or herself because they don't have any money so if we we,
1: they're not going to be good for the money that hasn't changed
2: (laughs) so i'm not suggesting suddenly they're, they're very rich but yeah no exactly i think that that targeting of journalists seems to be being reported much more nowadays there are lots of recent cases where the individuals have been targeted and that seems to be a concerted effort by the claimant lawyers yeah
1: It's time to look at the first of our three cases. Case one, Raheem Brenneman, American oil and real estate magnate and convicted fraudster. So Raheem Brenneman is now
2: serving time in New York penitentiary somewhere. And tucked under his arm is a court order from the London High Court, which says that he owes the Sunday Times about 500,000 pounds. And he owes us that because he dropped a libel claim against us. And the libel claim was over a story the Sunday Times published. John Ungoy Thomas and and Duncan Campbell were the journalists, and they'd written a story saying that he had used very well-known charities as a front. They'd been put down as the beneficiaries on Companies House documents. And it was suggesting that... There was something untoward about this. They didn't say that he was guilty of fraud, actually, but they said that this ought to be looked at because they had approached these charities and the charities didn't know anything about it. They didn't know that they were beneficiaries for all these offshore companies that had been set up by Brenneman.
1: How did it go from that story about to come out to him being served this order in New York penitentiary? So he...
2: Resisted publication. We got letters from from law firms saying what you're going to publish is going to suggest that he's he's a fraudster. So you can't do it because it's untrue. And of course, at the time, and this is going back a, a few years now, at the time there was absolutely no way of proving that he was a fraudster. And in fact, the journalists weren't suggesting that. They were just putting out the evidence there, saying this is very suspicious. This chain of offshores using these charities as, as a front. And he sued post-publication. So as soon as we publish, the letter comes in from the lawyers saying, it's defamatory, take your article down now and promise never to publish it again because it's damaging my client's reputation and it's untrue and you can't defend it in any shape or form. And when that happens, you've got a story up online. You've got to take a view in terms of whether you've got something wrong. So we don't have rhino skin. We we worry about letters like this that come hmm. in. We look at them. We speak to the journalists. We agonise. We go, oh, my God, have we got it wrong? Have we missed something? Let's go back our, over our notes. The journalist comes into the lawyer's office sweating a bit. God, you know, have, have I got something wrong? And everyone has second thoughts. So we, you go through that process. And then you hopefully you take the view that, no, what we did before publication was, was right. We haven't missed anything. Either we're going to prove the truth of it or it's in the public interest for us to have reported this. And you write back a letter, I write back a letter and my colleagues do, explaining what our defence is likely to be and explaining why we really have faith in it. And at that point, you rather hope that people are going to go away because they see the sense of what you're saying. Brenneman's story was one of those ones where they don't don't listen and the lawyers come on board and the lawyers very quickly say, if you don't take it down, we're, we're going to issue proceedings. All it really says is that you publish this story on such and such date. It's defamatory. It's not true. And you owe us money, damages, you've got to take it down. You've got to promise never to publish that story again. And then the the court clock starts ticking and you've got up to 28 days to respond in a defence that gets put before the court, which has to be pleaded by a barrister. And in that one, I had to instruct a QC to act for us. They have to have at their fingertips all the paperwork that the journalist has poured over. For possibly months. And this was one of those long running investigations which dug deep into boxes of of documents. And we've got to go through all of that and explain exactly why we believed that story was true. We did all this with Raheem Brenneman. And what happened with Brenneman was exceptional. Instead of going through the court process, which should take you to trial within 18 months, they started playing for time. They started saying that he couldn't meet deadlines because he wasn't well. He was absent. They needed more time for all sorts of reasons. And we were, I must say, very suspicious. He went through three sets of solicitors. And every time we tried to push things on, nothing would happen. And while all this was going on, we then hear that he's been indicted for wire fraud. By this point, we are more than two years into our battle with him.
1: Two years.
2: And we are out of pocket. We realise that he's not going to engage with us. No lawyer for him when he's been looked into for a criminal case in the US is going to allow him to talk to us anymore. So for us, for all intents and purposes, it's the end. You know, there's nothing more we can do. But because the case hasn't really finished, we have to wait until the court decides what we can do. He was eventually convicted. And when we heard that he was convicted, we were able to get a costs order against him to say, basically, he's not able to pay his money. We want a costs order to make him pay his money. Just so we could publish that fact, I I obtained an order from the court saying that there was a debt of half a million pounds and I had that served on him by a, a person that goes down to the court and he found him somewhere in a prison after he'd been put away and presumably shoved between the bars or something. I have no idea. The reason that I wanted to do that that is so we fell into line if his debts are ever looked at. But in reality, his debts are somewhere in the order of $300 million. So we will never be paid. So there's a real question there about at what point lawyers should have continued to act for him or not. At what point do you become a bit sceptical about your client's situation? At what point do you even know
1: that your client might be indicted? But also for newspapers, it just highlights another worry. You could spend a lot of money arguing because you know that your story is right Mm. but you it might never get to court you might never see that money again that's right exactly it's just gone
2: yeah and which is why i think a lot of newspapers these days settle claims because there are so many uncertainties down the line even if they think they're right even if they think they're right and that often requires an article to be taken down from online so it disappears from the archive it can't be reproduced it can't be drawn on by journalists for future research and the worst thing for me is it requires an apology You have to apologize to someone, even though you know what they did.
1: Coming up, we'll be looking at the case of the East End gangster. That's in just a moment.
0: I'm Anthony Lloyd foreign correspondent for The Times. I started reporting for The Times in 1993 from the Bosnian War. Since then, I've reported from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Sierra Leone, and now Ukraine. I can only do this sort of reporting thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. You can subscribe today and support our journalism by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: So sometimes people use the mere threat of legal action to try and stamp out a story. But at other times, they use the burden of proof that's needed in libel cases to their advantage, daring a publication to mount a hugely expensive lawsuit. The biggest thing with all
2: of this is it's it's very chilling and, and actually quite terrifying. I have you know very, very, very experienced journalists that I work with who... You can see getting really, really shaken by the fact that they might be spending the next four days writing witness statements for me because the only way of getting the story out is to actually turn up in court.
1: Another case Peer dealt with was that of David Hunt. Yeah, that was an extraordinary
2: one. David Hunt is... I can say, as the result of a libel judgment from the High Court in London, the head of an organised criminal gang. The reason I can say that is because we proved it to be true and we proved it to be true because he sued us for libel. The Sunday Times reported that David Hunt and his friends were going to be benefiting from the sale of land that was being sold ahead of the Olympics in the Docklands because he had an interest in financial interest in a lot of the land that was, was there. And we said that that was extraordinary because he was the head of an organised criminal gang. So that went into the story. And we also said that he was implicated in drug trafficking and murder. We weren't able to prove the truth of that, but we did convince the judge that it was in the public interest that we reported that. And we were able to win that libel case, I think, partly because we were committed to doing so. And we had a barrister who cross-examined David Hunt and the witnesses that he had in favour of him, much as a criminal barrister would prosecute a case, but also because of the absolutely brilliant evidence of the journalist Michael Gillard, who was able to draw on about 10 years' worth of experience in investigating the work of David Hunt and those who worked with him. And it was absolutely Bone chilling the whole story because we knew and I had no doubt that he ran an organised criminal gang in the East End of London and this was not supposition, it was not a hunch, it was fact, it was evidence that we had. And we had to get some confidential documents that the police had. We made an application for them. They tried to make an application against us to prevent us using police documents. And we said, we need those documents because we are trying to prove the truth here. We're, mm. try- we're, we're on a quest for truth. And the David Hunt action, in my view, and this is way back before slaps became a topic of discussion in this country, was absolutely an attempt to suppress the truth. And the judge, Mr Justice Simon, found
1: in our favour, thankfully. And with a case like that, I mean, you you know, as a lawyer, you're not just having to fight a libel case. You're basically having to do what you would normally get in a criminal court where you're proving that somebody Mm -hmm. is an arch criminal. That's a whole other burden.
2: Yeah, it is. And that's what the burden of proof really makes you do. So somebody like that comes into court and says, you've accused me of this. It's not true. His line was that he was a church-going pigeon fancier of good reputation. That was his position. <laughs> pigeon fanciers obviously don't make harsh criminals <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: from that defence. Yeah. Um, and, and we had to prove the opposite. Knowing how big that burden of proof would be, did you think about not fighting that libel case?
2: Absolutely. And not least because of the potential threat to witnesses who were appearing for mm. us. And in fact, the potential threat to the journalist, we took that very seriously. Because when you know that the individual that you are dealing with has done what we said he had done, you have to worry about what the repercussions might be. Yeah. So, you know, protection of witnesses, we've had it in other cases, too. Protection of witnesses is something that we do take seriously. You are putting people through a hell of a lot by fighting a libel claim, making them give witness statements, telling them they're going to be standing up in open court to tell their story. And you're putting journalists through a hell of a lot, too. So it's not something you take lightly. You've got to take a very cautious approach to defending something like that. And that's what editors here do very well.
1: What would have happened, though, if you'd backed down?
2: If we'd backed down on that story, we would have had to have apologised to David Hunt and paid all his legal costs, which is unthinkable, actually. We we would have had to say, you are not the head of an organised criminal gang. And we apologise and we will never say it again. And when you do that, you, you are then beholden to that individual forever. You can never report anything about him unless it's substantially different.
1: That's interesting. I don't think people would realize that you you wouldn't be able to report a similar story no. a few months later.
2: No. You you are you've got your hands tied if it's if it's at all similar. If it's completely different then you're free, but yes, by giving an undertaking that you're not going to publish something like that again, you can do that in a court proceeding. You can do it even with these pre-publication threats I was talking about. That's what they seek. They don't want it to come up again. Mm. They want to put to bed forever.
1: Despite that victory for the Sunday Times in the libel courts 10 years ago, David Hunt's only criminal conviction to date is for handling stolen goods in 1986. He was given a nine-month suspended prison sentence. Hunt continues to deny any wrongdoing and says he's a legitimate businessman. Journalists, meanwhile, say he's simply too big and too dangerous for the police to take on. That brings us to case three, the Russian oligarch. In terms of these slaps, in terms of the the campaign to stop some of these sort of strategic legal cases, which are just designed to stop the journalism, not necessarily sort of backing genuine libel cases. There seems to have been a real turning point with the case of Catherine Belton, who wrote this book, Putin's Mm -hmm. People.
2: Russian President Vladimir Putin's past as an officer for the KGB is well documented. But how exactly did Putin's time in the Soviet secret police go on to inform the strongman we know today? And what of Putin's immensely wealthy and immensely powerful inner circle? My guest today is Reuters journalist
1: Catherine Belton, who's this year published Putin's People. Putin's people are, are his inner circle of, of close comrades. And these are people who, unfortunately, have been steeped in a Cold War mindset. And they want to get even with the West. And they've done so in a way uh, under Putin's presidency, in which they've managed to grab control of most of the country's strategic cash flows. And rather than just using all this cash to line their own pockets, they've all been also been creating strategic slush funds, which they use to Sure up their own power at home and also to undermine their enemies in the West. Tell us a bit about the background of that case and why it seems to have changed our view of what slaps are.
2: I think it was timing with Catherine Belton's book. Catherine Belton wrote the book Putin's People and she was sued by Rosneft and Roman Abramovich. The story was really that Roman Abramovich didn't want to be reported as someone who was being run by Putin. He wanted to keep his his distance from Putin. It became important because of the sanctions following the invasion of Ukraine and the scrutiny that oligarchs were then put under. But we have seen oligarchs fight with us in terms of potential libel actions for many, many years. But Catherine Belton's legal case came to a head at the point where sanctions had been imposed and there wasn't much wrong with the book I think I can say I mean I can't say that action didn't happen there, there was a meaning hearing and a lot of what was published was found to be defamatory by a judge Catherine Belton the HarperCollins settled by her claim so there was no actual ruling on whether this was a slap But the very fact that Abramovich had to accept the settlement and did Mm. accept the settlement on the terms that we know about shows that that was a suitable outcome. Belton was one and a half million out of pocket and HarperCollins did have to reprint and remove quite a few sections, etc. But ultimately, the questions that were raised about the proximity of individuals to Putin and of Abramovich to Putin were legitimate ones to raise. The idea that he had bought... Chelsea at the behest of Putin was one that was clarified as not something they could prove to be true. Denials were put in, Mm. but there wasn't a complete retraction in terms of the questions that were asked. And I think that's what journalism often does it raises questions about the proximity of somebody who is an oligarch, for example, to somebody like Putin. And that's what was really in the spotlight when you looked at how money was coming into London at that time. So there are a whole host of questions which are still to be answered, which really were put into the fore because of Catherine Belton's book. And people did see that libel case as oppressive and as a slap.
1: Given that HarperCollins did have to change the book, there were amendments made. I mean, was it right for Abramovich to bring bring a libel case?
2: My view on that case was that libel proceedings were far too heavy-handed. And I think with cases like that, some sort of negotiations are much more appropriate. I don't know the detail about how the book came to be, but when we approach individuals for comment, we don't often get full answers. I don't know whether that happened in that case, but the clarification that they did publish in the end and the denials that they published, it's surprising those denials weren't provided for publication when the book went to press. Mm. So was he right to bring libel action? Maybe it was his only recourse. I don't know, but I would be surprised if HarperCollins weren't open to discussing that. And I think actually naming Catherine Belton in that suit when it was something that could have been negotiated with the publisher was wrong.
1: And, and that even ended up in, in the Commons. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah,
2: because of the connections between the Russian state and a number of questions that were being raised about why there was so much Russian money in London and how they were using that money to pay London lawyers in the London High Courts to keep information out of the public domain. A lot of people got very concerned and Bob Seeley, the Tory MP, raised it in Parliament.
0: It is a very serious situation that our legal systems have become so corrupted. And I just wonder, Mr Deputy Speaker, how on earth have we allowed this to happen?
1: Bob Seeley also used parliamentary privilege, which is a, another, another interesting mm. kink in our system when it comes to mm-hmm. looking at what you can say and can't say out loud yeah. and libel. But he used parliamentary privilege to be able to name the lawyers who were acting against Catherine Belton.
0: I just want to mention, OK, when it comes to the solicitors, as I understand, certainly in the Belton case, and Lewis, the, the solicitor, John Kelly, Geraldine Proudler, Again, CMS. Nigel Tate at Carter Rock. How often should that company have been mispronounced?
1: The lawyers were being named and shamed.
0: You've got to wonder about the reputations that these people are going to end up with in a few years' time, even if they are behaving as well as maybe they might. And I'm careful what I say. Maybe they're really lovely people, but maybe they are just their amorality is going to really begin to bite their reputations uh, in a way that will be uncomfortable.
1: That seems to have shifted the focus a bit. Are people looking at the legal industry and its role in aiding and abetting some of this behaviour? Yeah, very much so. I think, yeah, that was the
2: turning point. The focus really was on the lawyers and whether what they're doing is ethical or not. Now, Mm. I don't think anyone suggested that what they were doing was illegal, but it's led in the SLAPS debate to guidance being issued by the solicitor's regulatory authority who police the conduct of solicitors, questioning, you know, what what is the conduct of these individuals? Should you be marking letters as private and confidential mm. when you're answering questions which are legitimately posed by journalists? In other words, you're tying their hands. And this has all been regular practice for many years, but it's the first time that it was put under the spotlight. There's a real moment where people are looking at whether there should be a way of putting the brakes on these abusive, oppressive ways of bringing litigation and thwarting public interest journalism. And it's a whole new way of looking things, I think. And I'm I'm quite hopeful that something might be done.
1: I mean, tell us a bit about the campaign, the anti-SLAPS campaign that has sort of kicked off as a result of it. The aim is to have new laws, which mean that
2: if an oppressive case comes to court, that it gets booted out pretty damn quickly. So that doesn't happen. The Brenneran case is one that dragged on for far too long and we didn't have a way of speeding it up, of bringing the matter to a head, of putting the evidence before the court. The anti-slaps group basically wants to get some legislation onto the books which says that if something is in the public interest, that should be the starting point. Not quite switching the burden of proof, but a judge can take a view on... The conduct of the parties and whether there ought to be an early disposal of the claim. So you're not put out of pocket for millions over a couple of years and don't have to go through the pain of that litigation, which I think would be a remarkable outcome. Yeah.
1: And just at towards the end of last year, a number of editors, figures in in the worlds of journalism and and the law mm-hmm. signed up to what would be a model law that yeah. would sort of protect all of this. I mean, just tell us a bit about that. So if you bring a claim against a
2: journalist or a publisher and, and it's found to be abusive in the sense that it's oppressive and you know, thwarting public interest journalism, you have to bear the costs of that. So it's a real deterrent, and that's what the model law proposes.
0: Action should have been taken decades ago.
1: Pia, I think sort of when you know mm. talking about all of these cases, the ones that do get to court and even ones that don't, I think what you do realise is just that good journalism these days is expensive. Yeah. Being able yeah. to tell the truth
2: yeah.
1: is expensive. Yeah. Definitely. Because I
2: mean I've so I have worked with organisations who do not have lawyers and it absolutely means that they can't get stories out there. The ability of news organisations where they can to commit to legal resources, not just to employ me, but to be able to fight cases where they can, is really important for journalism. Thank God for the lawyers. Mm, Who would say that?
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Editorial Legal Director at Times Media, Pierre Sarma. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and this episode was mixed by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us.